Delaying and withholding tactics, red herrings, partial and doubtful outcomes are stock in trade for fiction writers. Gary Disher. Welcome to episode 44, what is a red herring and how they can improve your novel. A good red herring should be like a yellow light. It should make you pause long enough to slow down, but not be so inherently obvious that you come to a full stop. There will be green light characters, most likely your protagonist, who will fool your readers and make you think that no way they could be the culprit of the plot. For example, in The Silent Patient, the psychotherapist is really seen as the protagonist. He's seen as a good guy. He wants to help Alicia. He has a pure motive. In no way he would actually be the culprit. And then, of course, there are characters that are red lights, characters that, you know, really do seem obvious, like they are the ones at fault. Like Severus Snape in Harry Potter, he is, you know, a very obvious character that is seemingly out to get Harry. The red herring should fool the reader, but also be logical enough. A good red herring will be neither overtly suspicious or completely blameless. Megan's husband Scott in The Girl on the Train is a solid red herring. He gives you pause, but it's not so clearly him. In this episode, I'm going to discuss the key elements of a red herring using examples from literature and also how this can improve your plot. If this is the first episode of mine that you're listening to, I hope you'll subscribe. We have lots of episodes on reviewing books and writing character arcs and how to utilize pinch and plot points, so I really hope you will stick around. Number one. There are several red herrings in the course of all of the Harry Potter novels. When I analyze Harry Potter, I like to look at the seven books from an end-to-end perspective as if it was one singular arc. But the first key element of a red herring is that we're conditioned not to like them. Enter Severus Snape. We don't like Severus Snape from the get-go. He's this intimidating, sort of smart-ass potions teacher who always seems to have it out for Harry and his friends. He has a tendency to favor the bad guys, Slytherin, and is even headmaster of Slytherin. Slytherin is in direct opposition to Harry's house, Gryffindor, so Snape is a natural enemy to Harry. Throughout the series, Snape is seemingly always getting Harry and his friends in trouble, and he becomes ruder and more of a smart ass as the story progresses. We really, really don't like him, and we especially don't like him when we think he killed Dumbledore. Spoiler alert. But finally, we learn the real reason behind Snape's arrogance in the last book when it is revealed that he loved Lily Evans and Harry's father, James, picked on him throughout school, kind of bullied him, and then he stole Lily, his childhood friend. Lily's death was also very painful for Snape, and Harry simply reminded him too much of his mother and so even though Snape was not the bad guy he was not actually Lord Voldemort or Lord Voldemort's servant like we always sort of believed he was this still really improved the plot by creating new empathy for Snape as a character himself allowing him to stand alone as a character that was fully developed and just making him a much deeper and in the end, a more likable character. And J.K. Rowling did this by making us hate Snape throughout books one through six. So really effective tactic on her part. Most of us have a lot of different feelings about Snape, but overall we can say he 
actually became a positive character. Number two, red herrings have a logical role in the plot. A successful red herring doesn't come way out of left field. Sirius Black is another red herring in the Harry Potter series. The third book is almost entirely about how frightening Sirius is. He escaped from Azkaban and the Dementors, but Sirius also had a logical role in the plot to kill Harry's parents. He was believed to have betrayed Harry's parents to Voldemort on that infamous night. He was supposed to be the secret keeper, but in reality it was Peter Pettigrew. No one knew this because Peter used the Animagus charm and, term and turned himself into a mouse. This allowed people to believe that Sirius murdered him on the night that he also turned in Harry's parents. Totally, totally logical. But this is not only a logical red herring for Sirius also being connected to Voldemort and hating Harry and, you know, sort of being this bad person that allows Voldemort to exist, but it also really created a lot of fodder for the plot and ways for the plot to spin off in different directions. For example, it really connected things seamlessly whenever we learned that Pettigrew ended up being Ron's pet rat. Like, that's pretty funny. And I think a great connection by J.K. Rowling, never overlook even the smallest details in your novel. Always connect them. It also introduced us to this new character of Sirius and how important he was to Harry and how much of a best friend he was to Harry's dad. And this kind of allows Harry to connect more with his past, creating a deeper characterization for Harry and also Sirius. And this really spun off the plot, you know, all the way kind of through book six. And it definitely added another layer, another subplot, if you will, to Harry Potter. And this was all because of a red herring. Number three, perspective of the story. Alicia and the Silent Patient was a believable red herring because of the way the author told the story. The author told the story from the protagonist's point of view, who was the psychotherapist evaluating Alicia for being so crazy from the incident where she supposedly killed her husband, Gabriel. However, Whenever the psychotherapist starts digging into Alicia's past and we, the reader, get access to her old diaries, things really start not adding up. For example, we learned that Alicia was kind of seemingly innocently in love with Gabriel. She loved him so, so much. So why would she kill a man that she loved? We go into these deep flashbacks of their earlier life together and how great of a time they had. But then we do learn Alicia's mental health history. Perhaps she had some schizophrenia, some anxiety. And we kind of see that maybe she was just crazy enough that she killed Gabriel. But then we keep learning new information. And we learn how Alicia was kind of having trouble finishing her artwork. And she thought she saw a man spying on her. But it was kind of believable that she thought she saw a man spying on her because she was crazy. But then we learned some sketchy stuff about Gabriel's brother, so we didn't really know who to believe. And the reason why this worked out was because the author utilized a faulty perspective. And number four, a deep personal stake in the story. In The Girl on the Train, Scott, Megan's husband, has this deep personal stake within the story. He's perfectly set up to be the red herring. He's married to Megan, the girl who's gone missing. 
we find out through flashback that Megan had a couple affairs with Rachel, the protagonist's ex-husband, Tom, as well as with Megan's therapist. And so because she had these affairs, Scott has this temper. Um, He really wants children and Megan just not see herself as someone that's matronly or wants children. She feels very trapped in her life. So Scott kind of resents her for that. Because of this, he has a really personal stake in the story, and it's very believable that he would be the red herring. Overall, red herrings increase the stakes of your novel, they create interesting backgrounds for minor characters, and can even change the entire course of your plot. Utilize one or two strong red herrings, and your story will be set in motion, spinning off in the right direction. And now we have Indie Author Avenue. This week we're featuring Paper Castles by B. Fox. This novel is free with Kindle Unlimited. Foreclosures are hitting record highs, unemployment is skyrocketing, and the economy's in shambles. Equally broke and futureless, 28-year-old James Brooke, a graduate architect, coffee addict, and self-described nobody, has returned to his small hometown in West Ohio. Torn between his fanciful dreams and the need to pay off bills, he struggles to find his own identity while facing a harder-than-ever reality. But living under his father's rooftop while keeping his head in the clouds soon turns out to be a bad combination, and the mounting student debt forces him to settle for any job he can find. That's when he stumbles across a new coffee shop, a wayward girl with a talent for storytelling, and his own unresolved past. This unexpected set of things could help him figure out what his place in the world is if that place even exists. And once again, that is Paper Castles by B. Fox. I will be sure to leave this linked in the show notes. And don't forget, if you want to be featured on an episode, just respond to the pinned tweet on TurnRightPod and be sure to be following us on Twitter. That's all I have for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed. If you did, leave me a comment and don't forget to subscribe. As always, keep reading, keep writing, and keep querying, and I'll talk to you on our next road trip.